um, furnace is not working in the middle section there. That's why it's so cold. But the love of Jesus keeps me warm. Uh, so Proverbs 18. Yeah, I know. Uh, Proverbs 18, Proverbs 19. We're going to be in there this morning. Hey, let's pray and get started. Uh, Lord, thank you for just the time to come together here. We do praise you and thank you. Lord, help us to just really learn, grow, not just hear this, but apply this and all we say and all that we do and put this into practice. We pray that you are glorified in what is said. We pray that the saints are equipped and we just want to pray that your word is spoken and your salvation is presented in your name. Amen. Continue our study here through the book of Proverbs. We're going to do, uh, hopefully finish up Proverbs 18 today and get into Proverbs 19. And you know how we have been doing this. We find a verse there in the chapter. We'll make sure the verses are covered. That kind of sets the theme. And then we see all the different verses that go with that. So the theme starting here in Proverbs 18 comes from verse 3. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also. And with dishonor comes reproach. When the wicked comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes reproach. So let's break down what these words mean. First off, the idea of the wicked. What's it mean to be wicked? The wicked means to be against God. Doing anything ungodly is considered wickedness, according to the Bible. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, I'm not doing anything ungodly, really. I'm not really wicked. But you've got to remember, God has a different way of defining things than you and I do. In God's economy, you're either for him or against him. We like to, in our kind of human nature, create this huge gray area where I'm really not bad, but I'm really not good. I'm really not for God. I'm really not against God. God doesn't look at it that way, folks. We're either saved or we're not. And so from God's perspective, wickedness is doing things that is not of him. And that's where it brings contempt, disregard, disregard of God, disregard of morals, disregard of truth. And this is what you start seeing today, and this is the world we live in. We live in a world today where there's a complete, utter disregard of any morality, of any truth in any way whatsoever. Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy 4. He said this is what the end times would be like. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with the hot iron. Their conscience is seared. They don't even feel God, think about God, see God. That people depart from the faith, deceiving spirits, deceiving doctrines, lies. That's the world we live in. A wicked world with contempt and disregard for morals and truth. And what's the result of that? Verse 3. And with dishonor comes reproach. With dishonor, with shame, comes reproach, comes disgrace. There's a great verse in Romans 6 that says, look back. On the lifestyle you used to live and the fruit that you used to have, only thing you have out of that is shame. That's the truth. When we look back at what we used to do, how we used to live, how we used to act, how we used to speak, there's shame. And aren't you thankful that God is a God of grace and mercy and forgiveness? Because that is what we used to be, I hope. And if you're here this morning and you're saved, if you're born again... The old is gone, the new has come, and we're no longer walking in shame and disgrace. We're walking in love, grace, and forgiveness. It's a beautiful thing. But the question comes up then, if this is the way the wicked lives, and we understand that the wickedness just brings disgrace and reproach and shame, why do we value this wicked economy? Why do we value this wickedness? Take a look here at verse 5. It's not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. We show partiality to the wicked. Some translations say we accept them. Some translations say we acquit acquit them. This idea of we say what they're doing is okay. I, I want you just to stop and think about this for a second. How much we show partiality and accept the wickedness of the world. What does that look like to accept it? Well, we buy their music. We watch their movies. 
We hang their posters on our wall. We cheer for them. We celebrate their life choices. Guys, we're showing partiality to the wicked. We're accepting them in so many different ways. Why do we do that as a society? We accept this lifestyle. We accept this wickedness. We say it's okay. I think there's a lot of different reasons. A lot of times you run into the wickedness of the world and it has a charisma to it. It draws you in. Sometimes they have athletic ability, so we cheer them on. Sometimes they have power. Sometimes they have looks. But a big thing you see is money, success, prestige. It's amazing how as a society we automatically value people that have more than we do. That they have tasted success in this world. They have wealth. They have money. And we want to read their autobiographies. We want to read what they did. How did they earn success? We want to copy that. And God says, be very careful about this. Be very careful. I think back to Luke, the story that Jesus told about the rich man that just kept building barn after barn after barn. And then the Lord said to him, you fool, your life will be required of you tonight. You've built your kingdom on this earth, but you're still going to die. And I mentioned to you many times before, I've been at many end-of-the-life moments, and nobody at the end of their life is wishing they would have worked more and had more money. It doesn't matter at that point. You can have everything the world offers you, and you're still going to hell. The flesh is never satisfied. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines. The flesh is never satisfied. It always wants more. This idea of wealth, though, and money... It just really draws us in. Take a look at verse 11. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own esteem. Money gives you some type of protection in this world. Now, now please remember, just because the Bible states this fact doesn't mean the Bible is agreeing with this fact. The reality is in this world we live in, money brings privileges. Money brings, to an extent, some type of protection. Verse 11, it looks like it's a strong city. Take a look at the same chapter, verse 16. A man's gift makes room for him, and it brings him before great men. Money will talk. Money buys you friends. If you have money, you have more privilege in this world. You probably have more access to things in this world. Take a look at Proverbs 19, verse 4. Wealth makes many friends. But the poor is separated from his friend. If you got money, you got friends. You have access. You have privilege. You have all these things that money can buy. Same chapter, Proverbs 19. Take a look at verse 6. Many entreat the favor of the nobility. And every man is a friend to one who gives gifts. All the brothers of the poor hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He may pursue them with words, yet they abandon him. Money will give you friends. With your gifts, you can get a lot of things. And money gives you that privilege, gives you that power, it gives you that access. Money talks, and you can start acting differently. Jump back to Proverbs 18, look at verse 23. The poor man uses entreaties, but the rich answers roughly. We have money, we have power, we have privilege, we have friends. I don't need to worry about as much as what I say and what I do. It is amazing the access that money gives us in this world. And the Bible is constantly telling us about money and telling us to be careful about this. And money, when you see this, it is amazing how this idea and this drive for money can create a wickedness. The world can dangle a lot in front of you, folks. People choose jobs based on how much money they get paid rather than that's where the Lord's leading them. It's amazing here in just a couple months, we'll be, kids will be graduating from high school and you'll talk to them and a lot of their career choice is based off of dollar signs. What job is going to give me the most money? People will work so much overtime to get that bigger check and not realize they're losing their family. 
Because we always just want more. As we mentioned earlier, the flesh will never be satisfied. So does this make money evil? Now let's jump to the New Testament here. Let's get a couple of verses. First Timothy 6, please. It's easy to take a look at all these verses and the things about money and the dangers of it and just kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy 6. Let's pick it up here in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and as certain we can carry nothing out, and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. Well, that's life-changing, folks. If you can get to the point where you say, I have salvation in Jesus, and I'm content from that point on, you are blessed. There's always going to be one more thing to get. Be careful about that. Verse 6, you want godliness and you want contentment. Verse 7 is so true. You brought nothing in this world and you can take nothing with you. Food and clothing be content. One of the little phrases we use in the urban house is this. Do you have food in your bellies? Do you have clothes on your back? Do you have a roof over your head? Then be content. There may be a lot of things you want, but there's nothing you need. Nothing you need. What happens, though, when we want those things? Look at verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Look at those words there. That, that lust for riches, temptation, snares, lust, drowning in destruction and perdition. So therefore, money must be evil. Well, take a look at verse 10, though. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That's the love of money. It's not money in of itself. It's that love of money. I've met people that have no money, and they're still pretty greedy, awful people. I've met people that have a whole lot of money, and it doesn't even affect them. It's how you view money and how you love it. Just be careful what you are allowing yourself to be drawn into. You're playing a game, you can't win with this. That's why, according to the Bible, when you get to know Christ, you have eternal riches waiting for you. You have an eternal perspective of that's what matters. Jump ahead, same chapter to verse 17. What are we supposed to do with our money then? Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So if you have riches in this world, verse 17, don't be haughty about it. Don't be prideful about it. But realize God has given that to you. It's of the Lord and he's blessed you. And why has he blessed you? Because of verse 18, that you can go bless other people. Be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. You are blessed with riches to give it away. We forget this. Ephesians 4, 28 tells you the reason you work is to give things away. Now, that doesn't make sense to us. But you have a job. You have money coming in. And one of the reasons why you have money coming in is so you can give it away. You work to give it away. You don't work to get more. We've said this out here a lot over the years. When God gives us more money, it's not to raise our standard of living, but to raise our standard of giving. God is blessing you to go bless other people. And you're rich. Now, here's the deal. When I call you rich, I'm going by the world's economy, not the American economy. Because according to the world's economy, every one of us in this room is rich. We are. Now, you may not think that. You may not believe that because you're basing it on what you see around you in this country. Be careful of that. We've talked before about growing up. I remember in the 80s watching the show The Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. 
We watch these shows of people just showing off everything that they have. What is that going to create? A desire for more. And it's amazing now, if we ever see a show like that, you know, we don't have the, the satellite or cable to watch those shows, but if Dawn and I ever catch a glimpse of that, we look at these huge houses, and the first thing that we look at, Dawn looks at me, she goes, somebody has to clean that. <laughs> now, now, granted, if you have that house that big, you probably are hiring somebody to clean it. But the point is, that's a lot of stuff to have to take care of. It, it just amazes me. Ecclesiastes says that the rich stay up at night worrying about their possessions. Careful here, folks. If you are blessed, you are blessed because God says you can go represent me in more ways now with that money. You are blessed because now you can go out and raise your standard of giving and represent Jesus Christ in every interaction you have. It's not to go out and get more toys and more stuff. You are rich in this world. And God has given you richly all things to enjoy. He wants you to have joy in him. But he says the way you're going to have joy in him is by giving it away. And as you give it away, you're storing up for eternity. And I'm telling you right now, when you get this mindset that it's not mine, it's the Lord's. And I just got to keep figuring out ways to give it away. God says, okay, I'm going to keep giving you more. And go represent me now as you do it. And you will be so blessed. But just be careful of all these verses back in Proverbs because the world is telling you money talks. Money buys friends. Money buys privilege. Money buys prestige. Money buys success. And God says, yeah, and you still die. What are you going to do then? Money doesn't buy you salvation. You've got to remember to keep an eternal perspective on everything there. So now we read in 1 Timothy 6 the idea of being haughty. Talked about being prideful. Jump back now to Proverbs 18. That's our connecting word here. Proverbs 18. Take a look at verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. And before honor is humility. So before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty. Now, haughty is not a word we use. It's a Bible word. Haughty is more than just being prideful. Haughty is being prideful, but one translation said with a big attitude. You walk into the room and you can have pride and no one may know it because you can hide it. Haughty means, yeah, I see it coming. It's haughty. It's attitude. It's pride. It's a fun word. I encourage you tonight at work or tomorrow, just throw the word haughty and you'll sound very haughty as you do it. But the point is, it's got this attitude. It's got this pride. Now, here's the thing about pride, folks. Pride is extremely deceptive. Extremely deceptive. We've mentioned before that God will work with liars, he'll work with murderers, he'll work with thieves, he'll work with adulterers. He will not work with pride. He'll work with all types of sinners. God will not work with pride. Why will he not work with pride? Go with me to Isaiah 14. God won't work with pride because there's no room for him to work. The prideful person, it's all about them. And we see the beginning of this idea of pride way back from the fall of Satan in Isaiah 14. But here's the thing about pride. Pride is so deceptive. We always think of pride as in thinking that I'm the best. Pride is this idea of I just want to talk about me and how great I am. That, that is an element of pride. Pride is also thinking that you're the worst. Because you're still always talking about yourself. See, pride is a lot of things. I've had people come into my office over the years and they'll sit there and say, I bet you've never had anybody with as many problems as I have, Pastor. That's Pride. You have the worst problems in the world. No one has ever had problems like you. I bet you've never run into a marriage as bad as mine. You're prideful about how bad your marriage is. People are prideful about how many health problems they have. They're prideful about how many problems they have. And you may say, well, that's not pride. It is. 
I just want to talk about how bad my life is. I want to talk about me and all my problems, all my troubles, and I am actually prideful about everything going wrong in my life. It's a deceptive how evil pride is. And tell, instead of talking about how great and good God is, I'm going to talk about how bad I am. There's a pride in that. See, there's this idea that we think of humbleness as being, oh, I'm just not that good. I'm just really a failure. I'm no good. That's really pride. Because you're telling me once again all about you. Please remember, C.S. Lewis defined humbleness like this. Humbleness is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See, when you're humble, you're not even thinking about you. The good, the bad, or the ugly. You're just thinking about the Lord. You're talking about how good God is. You're talking about what God is doing and how God is moving. And you're not thinking about how bad your life is, how rough your life is, and how rough you have it. You're thinking about how good is God is. You're thinking of Jesus. You're thinking of other people. It says repeatedly in Proverbs and James and in Peter, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God says, quit thinking about yourself. Think about others. Just be careful that you don't get caught up in the deception of pride I'm also talking about how rough it is, how bad it is. So let's talk about here pride. Isaiah 14. This is kind of Satan's uh, mission statement, if you will. Verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart. Now, there's the five I will statements of Satan. Please note how many times the word I is repeated in the next two verses. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. That's Satan's fall right there. I'm going to be in heaven. That's my home. My throne will be above God. I will have the entire mountain of the congregation. I will have people worship me. I will be God. That's pride. What's the result of that? 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. Pride is so deceptive. Just remember that. Be careful of it. And when that pride comes in, destruction has come to get you. You may think you can hide it. You may think you can disappear. You may think you can cover all your steps. Pride will always deceive you into destruction and fall. It will. Pride says, you know, I can talk to that girl and it won't get too far out of hand. Pride says, I can get online and look at anything and I know when to click off. Pride says, I can have just one beer. I can stop anytime I want. Pride is, you know what, I really don't need to go to church. I can just have fellowship at home by myself. Pride is, you know, I've studied out Proverbs 18 many times in my life. I've taught the book of Proverbs twice before. I really don't need to study it too much. I know what I'm going to talk about. It's amazing how deceptive pride can be. Just be careful of how pride can come in and pull you off the Lord and start focusing on you and yourself. It comes in so many different ways. So I was thinking of an example of pride in the Bible, and we're going to go to Judges 16, please. Judges 16. There are so many stories of pride in the Bible. Which one is the best one to go to? So I picked Judges 16. We could go to the sin of Achan in Joshua, where his pride led to the death of so many people. We could go to Peter, who denied Jesus three times, but who was so prideful to say, I will never deny you. We could go to David, who was so prideful that had an affair with Bathsheba and said, I can cover it up. I can cover all my steps. There's just example after example of pride in the Bible. But the one I picked was the story of Samson and Delilah. Samson's quite the guy. 
Samson takes center stage for four chapters in the book of Judges. He's a judge for 20 years. And we've joked before about Samson is, if you just study out these four chapters of Samson, Judges 13 through 16, it's hard to find something to say, do this. I got five boys at home. I can't find one thing to say, guys, this is how I want you to be like Samson. I want you to go find Philistine prostitutes. Go find those boys. I want you to do this, boys. I want you to just marry immoral women. I want you to kill a lot of people. Samson doesn't have a lot of good stuff to say about him, but yet he's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as in the hall of faith. Samson ended strong, but man, there's a lot of weakness. So we're going to talk about the final story in Samson's life. Judges 16, verse 4. Afterward, it happened that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. Delilah's name in Hebrew means feeble or weak. Think about that for a second. The strongest man that ever existed was taken down by a woman named Feeble and Weak. Still happens today. I see a lot of godly men start dating a Delilah and their walk with Christ disappears. I see a lot of godly women start dating a man that you should probably just call him Delilah. And next thing you know, her walk starts to disappear. There's Delilahs at your job. There's Delilahs in your life. Things that make you weak, that make you feeble, and it brings you down. But the problem is, just like Samson, we're too prideful to see those Delilahs in our life. Verse 5. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him. Find out where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to afflict him, and every one of us will give you 1,100 pieces of silver. Delilah, bring him down. Find out where his strength is. Now, verse 5 is a fascinating verse. These are the verses I love just to chew on. I want you right now to imagine what you think Samson looks like. Probably about six and a half feet tall, right? Beautiful hair. Beautiful hair. And a great looking beard. I just think Samson's got a great beard. I mean, muscles beyond muscles. Probably has a very deep bass voice and a big heart. I mean, he's just this huge monster of a man. Do you realize the Bible never tells us what Samson looks like? And obviously, they did not know where he got his strength from, because take a look at verse 5. Find out where his great strength lies. We don't know. If this guy was this huge, muscular man, they wouldn't be asking this question. Where does his strength lie? In his arms. Do you realize Samson could have been about 5'1 and 95 pounds? I mean, he could have. We have no idea what he looked like. If he looked huge and almost superhero-like, they would not have asked where his strength is from. I wonder if Samson was five foot one and a hundred pounds soaking wet. Wouldn't that be fascinating to realize that's what Samson actually looked like? So that way the Philistines had to come and say, dude, we can't figure out. They probably didn't say dude, sorry. But they probably said, we can't figure out where this guy gets his strength from. He's killing people left and right. He's picking up gates of the city, and the guy's five foot one. Wouldn't that be fascinating? It would really show the miraculous strength of God more. I think we may just need to rethink a little bit here of what we sometimes create in our head of what these characters look like a little bit. Verse 6. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and with what may be bound to afflict you. Why not ask? (laughs) Why not just ask? Verse 7. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings not yet dried, and she bound them with them. Now men were lying in wait. 
staying with her in the room. And she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he broke the bowstrings as a strand of yarn breaks when it touches fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me with what you may be bound with. What is this guy doing? He already knows what she's trying to do. Why? Why is he still with her? Why is he still listening? Pride. He's always won every battle. He's won every victory. The pride. I can say no anytime I want. I can quit anytime I want to quit. I can do whatever I want to do. I, I, the, nothing's going to bring me down. Samson is walking with such, such pride. <sighs> Let's see what happens next here. So he breaks three. Verse 10, look, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now please tell me what you may be bound with. He said, said to her, if they bind me securely with new ropes that have never been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Therefore Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and men were lying in wait, staying in the room, but he broke them off his arms like a thread. Delilah said to him, Samson, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me what you may be bound with. She tries again. Heard Greg Laurie say one time, Satan is wonderful at giving out free samples, hoping you come back for more. And what you see here is just this flirting with fire. He knows what she's trying to do, but the pride says, I'll never be brought down. The pride says, I can win this any time. Verse 13, and he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head into the web of the loom. So she wove it tightly with the batten of the loom. She said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep, pulled out the batten and the web from the loom. Then she said to him, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? Guys, women have not changed in 3,500 years. They have not changed at all. Dropping the love card right now. You say you love me, you don't do that. Listen, Dawn and I will be married 23 years this year. She can bat her eyes, she can do this, and I become putty in her hands. And I know what she's doing. I know what she's doing. She knows how to do it. So here's Delilah, feeble, weak, taking on the strongest man that ever lived. Why don't why, you said you love me, Samson? You have mocked me these three times and have not told me where your great strength lies. So what does he do? Verse 16, it came to pass when she pestered him daily with her words, pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. Literally means in the Hebrew, he wanted to die. She pestered him so much, he says, I just want to die. No marriage quotes on that one right now. Verse 17, (laughs) he told her all his heart. Be careful who you tell all your heart to. Be careful. I joke about Dawn. I love Dawn more than any other person in this world. But I don't even tell her all my heart. And that doesn't mean I'm holding secrets from her. Don't take that the wrong way, folks. Don't hear a teaching. Oh, I can keep this from my wife. No, 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 no. We have open communication. She can see my phone anytime she wants. She can see my email. She knows what's going on. But here's the deal. There are certain things that the Lord has laid on my heart, visions for the future, things I'm praying about, that I really feel like the Lord said, James, just you and I work through this one for a while. I remember years ago, I opened up my heart about something with the Lord, and someone came up to me and gave me great advice that I've never forgotten. They said, you know what? Sometimes keep those things in your heart between you and the Lord until the Lord confirms what's going on. And especially, especially be careful here. Never, ever share your heart with somebody of the opposite sex that's not your spouse. Be very careful with that, folks. 
That is a dangerous, dangerous game to be. He told her all his heart, said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, and if I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called for the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand. You see the repetition here. When you open up your heart, you're getting yourself into some very dangerous areas, folks. This is why it is so vitally important when it comes to relationships with the other sex to make sure they are solid, grounded, biblically strong before you open up your heart in any way whatsoever, if you're looking for a spouse. So often in the society today, we get attracted by looks first, personality second, and then number three, I sure hope they're a Christian. Flip those around there, folks. Because once your heart gets attached to somebody, it's really hard to let it go. Really hard to let it go. What does she do, 19? She lulled him to sleep on her knees, called for a man, and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. I mean, can't you just see this happening? Come here, Samson, lay down. I want to rub your back for a while. Samson comes over, he lays down. She's talking to him nicely and sweetly. He's sound asleep. The feeble, weak Delilah has now gotten the strongest man in the world to give up his secret, to give up his strength. And what happens, 20? She said then, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That right there, guys, 20, that's death. That's pride going before destruction. The pride led him to be lulled to sleep. The pride led him to give up his heart. The pride put him in a position of where he was now defenseless. That's what pride does to you. That's what pride does to me. It is so deceptive. It takes us away from the strength. It takes us away from the Lord. He puts us in a position then where we are asleep. Asleep. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 13, awake, wake up. We have no urgency. We have nothing that's driving us anymore. We're asleep in this world and we confess Jesus Christ. But yet what has happened is pride has just put us to sleep. Pride has lowered our defenses. And next thing you know, we got nothing left. And when we finally think we really need the Lord, we get up and say, I will go out as before at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. Why? Because pride took me away from my walk with the Lord. Pride put me to sleep. What happens in 21? Then the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with bronze fetters and he became a grinder in the prison. John Corson says this, sin first blinds you, then it binds you, and then it grinds you. That's exactly what happened to Samson. He was blinded, then he was bound, and now he's grinding. That's what sin does. And then you look back and you say, how did I get in this spot? What happened? Pride came before destruction. And then you fell asleep spiritually. Jump back to Proverbs 18, please. Guys, we have to ask ourselves, are we getting lazy? Are we getting lazy spiritually? I mentioned to you Romans 13. It says this, I didn't do this knowing that the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. 
High time to wake out of sleep. There's no urgency. Our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do you realize that every moment you are one second closer to death or rapture? It's just the facts. We assume we're coming back together next Sunday. I don't know that. You may not be here next Sunday. You may be taken home. I may not be here next Sunday. I may be taken home. We have no guarantees of today or tomorrow. That's the world we live in. So if we have no guarantees of today or tomorrow, why do we act like we have these years left ahead of us? That's pride. Why do we act like we're allowed to be half asleep spiritually? That's pride. Why are we willing to be living in sin, knowing what we're doing is wrong, and not be convicted about it? That's pride. Destruction will come. Folks, we have become lazy in prayer, lazy in the word, lazy in worship, and lazy in ministry. Because we think we have time, energy, and that pride is destroying us. I'm not preaching some type of legalism. I'm not preaching some type of have to. I'm trying to preach you some type of urgency and expectancy. Prayer. We treat our prayers like just telling God what to do. Lord, I'd like safety to and from work today. Sickness is going around. Health for me, please. Better job, better promotion. Just treat prayer like that rather than seeking the glory of God and the deeper things of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We've become lazy in the word. I want the shortest devotions possible that gives me the most. Lazy in worship. I started thinking about this week, how lazy we've become in worship. What does that mean? I have, I have six different Christian radio stations programmed on my car. So if I'm listening to the radio and a song comes on that I don't really like, guess what I do? I just go to the next one. Go to the next one. I don't really want to hear that song. So then I come into corporate worship and they start doing a song that I don't really like. I can't change the song. I can't change it. I can't change their style. I can't change the volume level. I'm so used to putting what I want to hear when I want to hear it. And I forget that I'm supposed to bring the sacrifice of praise. Maybe God is saying, those songs have been prayed over and spirit-led, and you need to really listen to the words of that song. We've become lazy in ministry. We want easy, not eternal. Lord, I want the easiest ministry possible. I ran into that this week. I wanted easy ministry, not eternal. Dawn and I went out on a date yesterday, which are kind of few and far between. And so you got about three hours. That's our date. Get there, get back, got the kids. And so we were in Meyer, And as we were in Meyer on the date, we're just picking up some items that we needed. Um, I was in a different aisle than Dawn was, and I saw two young ladies, and they were uh, Mormon. You know, they got the badges, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And I saw them, and I thought, I should go talk to them. And I didn't really want to. It's a date. I don't have a lot of time. Plus, I don't mind talking to Mormons. I talk to Mormons a lot. I usually talk to Mormon men. Testosterone gets going. Let's debate. These are two young ladies. Reaching a point that they're young enough to be my kids. Probably 19, 20 years old. And the Lord says, you need to go back and talk to those. So I do what I do. I go up. And the way if I want to talk to somebody, if I'm at Walmart or Meyer, I just do this. I'm not saying it's spirit-led. I go stand between what they're looking at. And that's what I do, guys. There's nothing deep there. I go. And I go and I stand between. I say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were looking at that. So that's, that's lie number one. So they were, looking at, they were looking at jalapeno M&Ms. I don't even know why they make jalapeno M&M's. I don't know. So they're looking at jalapeno M&M's, talking about how strange that is to have jalapeno M&M's. And so I just, I, we said, yeah, jalapeno M&M's. I said, those are weird. And I'm at this moment thinking, okay, how, how do we make this about the Lord? 
So I said something about, yeah, I mean, we were down in Mexico doing some missions work earlier or last year. And I said, they had like these chocolates that were hot, et cetera. And they said, oh, you were in Mexico doing mission stuff. And they said, yeah. And they said, oh, yeah, we're on a mission. And I looked and I, Mormon, I said, oh, you're a Mormon, I didn't know. Line number two. But I said, you're Mormon, I didn't know. So I said, oh, you're on your mission. And they said, yeah, we're on our mission. I said, so where are you guys from? One was from out west, one was from overseas. I said, so you're from out west, you're from overseas. I said, how did you end up in Bowling Green? I said, well, what happens is, is the prophet uh, then seeks the Lord, and the Lord then speaks to the prophet, and the prophet then tells us where we're supposed to go. And so she's going on and on about how the prophet uh, has the Lord speak to the prophet, and then the prophet tells them, and then they just obey the prophet and go where God's telling them to go. And I said, sounds like the prophet is uh, kind of doing the role of the Holy Spirit there for you guys. She goes, oh, well, yeah, the, the prophet speaks to the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit tells the prophet, the prophet tells us what to do. I said, you, you do know that the Bible teaches that you can take that rung out of the ladder, and there's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And I said, the Holy Spirit then can empower you and lead you. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we believe that, but the prophet speaks to the Spirit, and then this is what's happening here. And I said, yeah, but the Bible says, and then they said, well, you've you got to remember. I said, they said, we believe the same thing. That's what she told me. We believe the same thing. Now, right then and there, I want it easy. You, they're, they're nice young girls. They, they're, they're dressed nice. They're polite. They're kind. Let's just shake hands and say, you're right. Just different wording. But eternal is what matters. These two young ladies are on the way to hell. I said, we don't believe the same thing. I said, your, your books, Doctrines and Covenants, your Book of Mormon is different than the Bible. And they said, no, they're the exact same. I said, but they're not. I said, Paul says in Galatians that even if an angel comes down and preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. And they said, but it's the same. I said, I said read John 14, 15, and 16. It, it's not the same, the Holy Spirit. And so we're kind of going back and forth on this. About it's the same, it's not the same. And I said, but it's not. And, and I said, and I, we talked for a while. And, they, and I said, I'm asking you to do this. Would you just go take your Bible and read John 14, 15, and 16 for me? Learn about who the Holy Spirit is and how Jesus said the helper's coming. And just read that. And she assured me she would. So if you don't mind, say a quick prayer that they did. That they would go home and actually read this. But I'm telling you right now, the easy part would have been just not to say anything. And problem is sometimes is I want to sleep. I, I don't want to work. I just want to sleep. I just want to sleep spiritually. It, it's hard. Ministry can be hard. And we're all caught into the ministry. And, and it can be emotionally a struggle. And, and I didn't used to be this way. I used to witness. I used to share because that's what we're supposed to do. And sure, I cared about people. But I tell you recently, it's really, really bothering me to have these conversations with people and to realize they're not accepting the truth. I was talking to a guy earlier this week and just sharing the gospel and just Jesus. And, and I've met him before and he knows about a half dozen people that come out to church here. And so he's asking me, hey, does so-and-so still go to your church? Yeah, does so-and-so still go to church? Yeah, does so-and-so. And as I'm, I'm telling him about the gospel and I start realizing almost everybody he knows that, that calls this their church They're not deep in the Lord in any way whatsoever. 
So this guy is looking at them and basically saying, I'm just as moral as they are. I talk the same way they talk. I live the same way they live. They go to church. They claim to be Christians. I'm talking to their pastor. And I realize that their lifestyle is affecting this guy and lulling him into a sleep of where he realizes he thinks he's okay. And I thought, this is just, this is just wrong. This is the responsibility that we all have to be a light and a witness for Jesus Christ. This is why the Bible says that every one of us is influencing somebody. And I started thinking about these two young ladies. They're going home and they're going to go door to door to try to lead people into a false religion. And they are totally convinced that they're right. This is the darkness that we live in. This is why people need to wake up. And this is why if you're here this morning, I appreciate you coming here. And I'm not preaching a legalism. I'm not preaching to have to. I want to preach to you guys an urgency. I realize that we have become lazy in prayer and in the word and in worship and ministry. And we kind of just want to spiritually sleep. And that's why Paul told us, wake up. Your salvation is drawing nearer than when you first began. And we need to realize how easy it is to become lazy. And the dangers of that laziness. Take a look here at Proverbs 18. Verse 9. He who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Laziness destroys things. If you're lazy in your marriage, you're going to destroy your marriage. If you're lazy in the word, you're not going to have a strength in your walk. If you're lazy in worship, you're going to always be thinking about yourself and not about the glory of God. Be careful. It's a great destroyer. Chapter 19, please. Proverbs 19. Look at verse 15. Laziness cast one into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. Laziness puts you to sleep. You just kind of go through life. Here's the thing about sleepwalking. If you see somebody sleeping, we have two boys that used to sleepwalk. And when they would come up, it's actually really funny. Eyes are open. They're kind of acting like they're awake. They kind of even talk a little bit and do stuff. But there's nothing there. Do you realize how many people just come to church and there's nothing there? How many times we just read something? We got done with our devotions. I don't even know what I read this morning. I don't even know what we worshiped this morning. I just spent a whole day going to and from doing something and realized I never even once thought about the glory of God or is that person saved or not that I'm speaking to. I've just been so lulled to sleep. Proverbs 19, verse 24. A lazy man buries his hand in the bowl and will not so much as bring it to his mouth again. So lazy that the spoon goes into the cereal and we can't even bring it back up again. I know that sounds funny. And maybe you have pictures, we have videos of our boys probably about a year and a half old falling asleep while eating or something like that. But we're talking about people here that are just so spiritually asleep. There's no time for the Lord. It's amazing what we'll find time for. We'll force ourselves up to stay awake to finish that movie. But not for devotions. We'll plan a vacation six months in the future, but I don't know if I'll be at church on Sunday. It is just absolutely amazing what we have lulled ourselves to sleep in. And the pride comes in, and I know what I'm doing is wrong, but just like Samson, I really don't care. I'm strong enough. And I'm falling asleep spiritually, and I really don't care. Guys, it's a dangerous, dangerous place. And as it happened with Samson, sin will blind you, it will bind you, and then it grinds you to nothing. I want us to wake up 
and realize, realize what really matters in life. What I want to finish with is this. Go with me now to um, Psalm 42, please. That last song we sang for worship, As the Deer. I don't know if you realize that's you're singing God's word. Psalm 42, look at verse 1. As the deer, Psalm 42, 1. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. For the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night. While they continually say to me, where is your God? Look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God. Verse 4. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. With the multitude that kept the pilgrim free. This guy used to. And now he's drying up. And he's wondering, why is he drying up? Because he's lost his focus on the Lord. And what happens now, verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. My soul is cast down. I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I'm bothered. Why? Because I'm not panting for God. I'm not longing for God. I'm okay with this half-hearted thing. Go with me to Psalm 63, please. Psalm 63. Look at the passion in this Psalm of David here in verses 1 and 2. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Guys, I I want our souls to thirst for the Lord, to long for the Lord. But it's hard to thirst and long for the Lord when we're kind of fulfilled with everything we got in the world. It's kind of hard to thirst and long for the Lord where I'm really just tired. Can I just spiritually sleep? Time to wake up. It's time to realize that maybe we have gotten lazy in some things. And if this doesn't mean that you go home and say, okay, now I'm going to legalistically do this. I'm going to set my alarm early. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do you know what? Maybe that's good if the Lord leads you to do it. But I tell you, what happens is this. If you would just go to Psalm 63 and say, okay, Lord, this is my prayer now. It, what would happen? Just look at Psalm 63 with me, verses 1 and 2, and just say, this, this is my prayer. Oh, God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. And a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. If we would just actually mean that, God will honor that. Like I said, we sang Psalm 42 this morning. And it's a beautiful song. As the deer pants for the water, so my song, so longeth after you. We sang it. I hope we meant it. We can't make it. We can't force you. But I tell you this. I can plead with you. And I can encourage you to thirst for him. Time is short, folks. And we need to realize, just as we read in Romans 13, we are closer to the end than we are to the beginning of our salvation. Let's thirst and long for him. And let's awake out of sleep. 
Let's not let pride rule us. And I'm telling you right now, if you're here this morning and you know you're doing something you shouldn't do it and pride is blinding you to it, God loves you, but you're in sin. Stop. Repent, confess, get right with him. If you're here this morning and you're kind of half asleep, maybe literally, maybe physically, I don't know, wake up. Realize that there's deeper things going on in eternity than just what your life is. Realize the depth of what we're supposed to be doing. Lord, let us long for you, thirst for you, want more of you. Let the Lord lead you in all ways and all things. Worship team, if you want to come forward here for the final song. What song are you?